Actually, that, that story doesn't have anything to do with anything. I just figured I'd tell her. You know, I would like to uh, share a story with you tonight that uh, does have a point to it. And the, uh, the filming of the Chalk Talk was made in a conference room about one-third of this size in the Federal Building in Washington, D.C. in February of 72. And I began that morning by saying to the approximately 50 people present, but I believe that we human beings have an absolute genius for making mistakes. Most of us are quite good at it. I also believe that most mistakes we make are the result of ignorance rather than knowledge. It's what we don't know that makes us make an error in judgment. Some mistakes are funny. We've all made them. The classic story they tell is about a little nun going to confession and she tripped and fell going in. It was so dark the priest did not know it was a nun. That was the missing fact. And you'll see what happened. All he knew was someone had fallen. And so immediately he was concerned. He said, what's wrong? She said, excuse me, Father, I'm so nervous. He said, why? She said, my children. She told second grade you would kill him. He said, how many children have you? She said, 42. He said, get the hell out of here. I thought you were drunk and you fell in. <laughs> No harm done. Some mistakes are embarrassing. We've all made them. Some mistakes are painful. And we've all made them. And the story I told that morning had to do with a mistake that was all true. It proves that there was an old oriental gentleman. By the way, the government got absolutely paranoid about this thing over possible ethnic repercussions and they cut it out. But I think it's a good story. Um... One afternoon, this very old oriental gentleman became quite irate over the fact that someone had tossed his outhouse over the hill. He had two children, boys, one was eight, one was nine. They were typical, mischievous kids. And he called them in, he asked them point blank, you know who threw Papa son our house over hill? And they didn't know. So he sat them down in front of them, and he said, We'll write to tell you a story of American a boy named George Washington, who, one day, chopped down Papa Son Washington's cherry tree. <laughs> Papa Son Washington called him in, asked him if he knew about cherry tree, and George said, Papa Son, no can tell why. It was I who chopped down your cherry tree. Papa Son Washington cut him on head, give him cookie for to tell the truth. With that, the nine-year-old jumped up with a big grin. He said, Papa Son, it was I who would throw your outhouse over you. And the old man nearly killed him. <laughs> so the little kid came to. He asked the obvious. He said, Papa Son, for why you tell story of virtue get reward? George Washington tell truth, get cookie. I tell truth. You with me. And then the old man told him why. The only one difference. When? George Washington chopped down Papa Son Washington cherry tree. Papa Son Washington not in cherry tree. <laughs> the very difference. Ladies and gentlemen, you never make a funny, embarrassing, or just plain painful mistake about an alcoholic. Never. It's always tragic. Always tragic. <laughs> Uh, a couple of Septembers ago, I remember the date, 13th. I was leaving for New Zealand that day. We were to leave the house at 8.30 in the morning to go to the airport, and at 8 on the radio came the news, 
and after the national news, this little bit of local news came over. A man had fallen on the railroad tracks in Aberdeen, Maryland. It's about five miles from our house. And a train severed one of his arms. Beating to death, he crawled alone to a house where he had been holed up, some abandoned house, to die. But a little girl saw the arm, told her parents, they were absolutely horrified, called the police and created the dogs. They found him and flew him by helicopter to the shock trauma unit of the downtown Baltimore Hospital. One hour later, we were going down I-95 to the airport. You could see the city and the buildings in there. You could see the hospital. And I told May, uh, who was driving the hospital, I said, you know, if I weren't leaving the country, I'd visit that man. I'm convinced he's an alcoholic. Two reasons. Number one, only alcoholics fall, pass out on railroad tracks and get their arms taken off. And number two, only alcoholics are so lonely that they crawl off alone to die without seeking help. I honestly don't know whatever happened to that man. I really don't. The last line of the newscast said he's in critical condition. What might have happened at any hospital to which he was taken, patch up the arm, ultimately discharge him to die an alcoholic death in another way. You know what I'd like to do this evening? I'd like to address myself to one aspect of alcoholism that everybody screams about, and only in recent years has anything been done about. You and I make the statement that alcoholism is a family disease. The conclusion that should be drawn from this is that whole families need treatment. I, you know, there's nothing new in the world of alcoholism, really. Uh, there are no great breakthroughs. Anyone who speaks, including myself, offer nothing new. We simply address the subject from any given different point of view or address ourselves to some facet of it. That's what I'd like to do this evening, is to discuss alcoholism as a family disease. In the medicine section of Newsweek, uh, or within the past couple of years, I remember reading that they are not getting away from one-on-one -on -one therapy. If a, if a person, a specific individual, has a specific problem, it needs treatment. What they're doing now is bringing the family in to share in that, for the simple reason they are emotionally connected. For example, if you were to go home tonight and find out your 13-year-old daughter has just been raped, that's your business. When you go home and you receive a long-distance call from home that your mother is dying of terminal cancer, that's your business. And you need to face that and resolve your own emotional trauma that resulted from it. In alcoholism, it's infinitely more. There's not just an emotional connection between the family members and the alcoholic. The family members have been affected by the drinking of the alcoholic to the degree that they become sick themselves. And the statement has been made, and I believe it. Those who live with an alcoholic become as sick or sicker emotionally than the alcoholic. <clears throat> Do we not say, you and I, that one of the sickest of the sick on earth is the alcoholic because he's the last one to acknowledge that he's sick? There's one person sicker, the spouse. Because in the mind of the spouse, the alcoholic has the problem, the bottle. What do you mean I'm sick? I'm the strong one. I had to go back to work. I had to pay the mortgage. I had to raise the kids, etc., etc., etc. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, when I mention the alcoholic as he, that's purely grammatical. I mean the alcoholic, be it male or female. Okay. I'm going to spend a lot of time tonight giving some background to what I have to say because I think it's infinitely important. Remember the musical South Pacific? There's a song in it, You Have to Be Taught to Hate. 
Number four, which the Navy nurse went to the South Pacific. She went to an island with a contingent of people she was with. And while there, she met and fell in love with a French plantation owner whom she became, to whom she became engaged to be married. She then, to her horror, discovered he had three little brown children by a native girl to whom he had been married and who was now dead. She told back. And somebody sang a song to her, You Have to Be Taught to Hate. And then she realized that her prejudice was showing. Well, ultimately it was resolved. Ladies and gentlemen, it is true you have to be taught to hate. You remember the busing incidents in Boston where blacks and whites were screaming at each other? That's relatively unimportant. You know what was horrifying? Black children and white children were yelling at each other. The kids have been taught to hate pretty well on both sides of the fence. Now what I do is take that coin and turn it over. We also have to be taught to love. We are made to love by God, and yet we have to learn it. It is a learned process. How many times in our own lives when we were children have we heard from our parents, and how often have you as parents said this to your kids? Share that with your little brother. Give your little sister some. Let your friend ride your bike. Share that with him. Share, give, let over and over and over and over and over and over again. We have to be taught to love. What is love? Everybody talks about it. We make songs about it. Love is like gratitude. How do you define it? We all know we have some sort of feeling about it. We all, you know, have some sort of definition. How do you spell it out in words? How do you define gratitude without repeating the word? Gratitude is being grateful. Or a synonym, gratitude is being thankful. What is it? I would like from a single given incident in my own life to try to get you to think a few thoughts about this phenomenon we call love. There's a girl in the family, and I love her dearly. She is, she's a beautiful girl in every way. She's 33. She's involved in a fairly unhappy marriage. She has one child, a 13-year-old girl. And I'd like to fill you in on her background. Both parents were alcoholics. She does not blame her father for much because her mother shielded the father and took all the blame and the hatred and the cursing. This girl predicates her present unhappiness to her mother. I am what I am and I feel the way I feel and I'm miserable and unhappy when I'm miserable and unhappy because of my mother. I wasn't raised right. She didn't give me much. She didn't love me. I went to foster homes. I had an aunt raise me. On and on and on. She predicates her unhappiness of another. She also predicates what she believes will be her future happiness on someone else. Listen to these words, please. My day will come and it will be brought by somebody else. She has the foggiest notion that we determine our own state of happiness or unhappiness. My happiness can be affected by people, places, circumstances, things. If I were walking down the street and a good friend of mine smacked me in the face, I would cry. I can be made to feel bad by many things. But I know this. It is what I let those things do to me that's going to determine whether I'm happy or not. Dr. Ellis, of, of the inventor of rational emotive therapy, he uses this example to illustrate. He said, it rains. One man's happy, one man is not. The happy man is the farmer who's been waiting for it. The unhappy man is the one who wanted to golf and can't. But as well, the rain is the same. The rain is rain. One man's happy and one man's sad because of the internal attitude toward the rain. 
This is all by way of background. This girl truly believes that she was made unhappy by others and she will be made happy by others. She has relatively little to do with it. She's afraid to make decisions. She's afraid to be on her own. She studied hairdressing up to a few hours before graduation and hasn't completed them yet. She took secretarial courses up to the point of graduation and never completed them. She's afraid to make adult decisions. All right, she had a big, beautiful dunny book with her husband one night, came over to see me. And she got all the venom out. I said, let's just call her Mary. I said, hey, Mary, you mentioned love about, I don't know, six or seven times. What do you think it is? And she was kind of embarrassed now to talk about love. Nobody had ever asked her that. I dare say very few people have ever, ever asked us that. I said, you've mentioned love several times. But what do you think it is? And she kind of hemmed and hauled. And I said, hey, wait a minute. It isn't that there's a certain definition. If you give it, you're right. And if you don't give it, you're not right. I said, just tell me what your thoughts about love are all about. So she thought for a long time. And she said, well, uh, I'll tell you what I think it isn't. Sorry. She said, it's not what I thought it was when I was 15 or 16 years old. You know, all the garbagerie and books and stuff. Where do these novelists come up with the glut they do, you know? <laughs> At the magic moment, she could feel the surf pounding in her ears, you know? Well, I guess that happens if you're making love in the ocean. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the man who saved my life used to make this statement about human emotions. Emotions are what we have the most of and know the least about. No one can sustain any emotion all day, every day. Not even hatred. It just can't be done. We're not capable of it. And so a man became a millionaire by writing a single play, The Seven Year Itch, and is playing out in Seattle right now. On stage. It's that popular still. It's, it's, it's done. It's a perennial. And what it has to do with is a marriage in which the emotion has kind of died out. And a man and wife come down to breakfast and each one's kind of sneaking glances at the other one and each one is like, who is that? Who is this total stranger that I've been living with for seven years? So she went on and on in that thing, you know. It is not chemistry. It's not shortness of breath and pounding in the ears and all that. That's what we think it is. And she thought a long time. And finally she said, well, I believe that true honest to God love shows itself not so much in big ways but little ways. I said, like what? She said, well, uh, I would like to be taken to a movie once every six or seven years. I'd like a box of candy for no reason. No reason. It's not my birthday. It's not Mother's Day. Do you ever notice out here in the United States where we have invented Mother's Day, American husbands give American wives Mommy's Day presents? And the wives accept them. You just think about that for a while. You just think about that. He said, I would like, as he's passing by, just to touch me on the head without a word and without wanting anything more. She said, that would say more than volumes. She said, I would, I would like to experience what I call the natural virtues. Kindness, politeness, sensitivity to others sensitivities 
He said, I'd kind of like to have a door held open for me, especially when I'm walking behind him with my arms full of groceries. So I'd like to hear the words please and thank you every now and then. Ladies and gentlemen, have you ever experienced in any given home, perhaps your own, that the words please and thank you are almost non-existent indoors? And she went on and on and on. And when she finished, I pointed out the obvious. I said, you just gave a perfect definition. Perfect. Of being loved. She named everything she wanted to get. And she was unhappy because it wasn't there. I said, do you do these things? And her chin went down to her navel. And we had a kind of a long talk about love. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, other people. That girl was unhappy because another human being was not living up to her standards of what she felt he should be. Everything she said was true. Everything she said was true. But it was making her unhappy. My friends, I have been privileged to meet and to have been able to talk with many a prisoner of war, usually Air Force people who were shot down. Those who survived and can now cope with freedom, unlike those who came out and turned to alcohol, drugs, wound up insane, or suicides, those who came back and resumed their military careers were men who learned not to hate. That's the one characteristic they all share. They speak about the men who broke their bones as they, almost impersonally, as they would of neighbors. Because they realized very early in their imprisonment that hatred destroys the hater. They just don't hate. And it wasn't a question of positive love of these men. It was a question of self-survival. Self-survival. I said, Mary, I'll tell you exactly what I think love is. To love is to give. You had the right notion, but you're in the wrong person. To love is to give. But my friends, to give is to hurt because it demands sacrifice. Only big people can love. Only big people can love. That's why 50% of American marriages bust up. The contracts are taken on by emotional midgets who are incapable of giving when the emotion wears thin. To love is to give. The, the idea of human existence and human growth is not to do your own thing. My God, if I did my own thing, I'd wind up in jail. So would most of you. <laughs> you know, you hear this nonsense. We look at little 10-year-old kids that do your own thing, honey, and then he grows up to be 17 and does his own thing, and we near die. And you know this wacko notion of freedom. Freedom isn't doing what pleases you. True, honest to God, freedom absolutely demands gigantic self-discipline. To be free, I have to be free from those things that shackle me to myself so that I'm open enough to be able to love you. Love, my friends, has an object outside of self. I love you. And I've got to be free to do that. I have to be free of self-centeredness in order that I can be centered on others. Love is doing somebody else's thing. It's a young mother gagging while she washes dirty diapers. That's love. Because there's no emotion in it. Real honest to God, love on the part of the recovered alcoholic is going on a 12-step call that's absolutely abhorrent to him. As we say in recovery, you don't have to feel grateful, you just have to be grateful. 
It's not feeling. And so we functioned on feeling when we were drinking. What's all this have to do with alcoholism? Ladies and gentlemen, the alcoholic is incapable of love because he is shackled to himself by the very biochemistry of his body. Every conscious and unconscious act goes to getting and consuming the drug without which he cannot even survive. Now, please, where is love learned? In the family unit. Those who believe in free love notwithstanding, the family is still the basic unit of humans. It is where we learn everything and we begin the learning process from the time we open the womb. I will learn to love from those who teach me, my mother and father. Love cannot be learned in an alcoholic family. The truth of any pudding, just look. Over 50% of recovered alcoholics come from an alcoholic home. That's a statistic out of the New York office. And every single one of them said it will never happen to me. I won't even touch it. The alcoholic cannot love except in a sick, sentimental, prostituted, unbalanced way. <laughs> Who is an alcoholic? Everybody in the room has a definition. We have all kinds of textbook definitions. I'll tell you exactly what an alcoholic is. A creature that is cut off from the very purpose for which it was made. See those chairs you're sitting on? That's why they were made to be sat on. The chairs in the back of the room are chairs. The empty ones. But they are most chairs when somebody's sitting on them. That's why they were built. A chair is a chair when it's folded up in a closet, but it is most a chair when somebody's sitting on it. Airplanes were made to be flown. An airplane is an airplane when it's in a hangar being repaired, but it is most an airplane when it's in the sky. What and why are we, ladies and gentlemen, you and I are love machines. We were made to love, to give. And the alcoholic can't. I'll tell you exactly what I think an alcoholic is. A fish out of water. We humans, like other animals, were made to breathe oxygen from the air through our lungs. The fish is made to breathe oxygen from water through its gills. Take a fish out of water. Did you ever watch a fish die? It can't articulate. It can't verbalize. It can't scream. And so its body flips and flops and writhes in agony, screaming in silence for the very oxygen it needs to survive. And it flops until it can't flop anymore and it dies. And that's exactly what happens to the alcoholic. So often... The total island of misery and frustration that every alcoholic is winds up dead. Many an alcoholic takes his own life. And suicide is very high in the alcoholic population. But if you go to enough AA meetings, you'll hear of attempted suicides. Most alcoholics aren't even good at that. We're afraid to live and we're afraid to die. The result in the family is obvious. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the most magnificent and fascinating expression of love? Sex. It is the supreme act of giving. That's what the marriage contract is. Priests and ministers and rabbis don't marry people. They simply stand there to witness the thing. You make the contract when you get married. And you stand in front of the world to make known your commitment. I hereby give one single other individual the total rights to myself. Now please... A man and wife are man and wife when he's in San Francisco and she's in New York. They are man and wife when he's at work and she's at home. But they are most man and wife when they are one flesh, body and soul, united in the supreme act of giving. Here I am, I give myself totally, completely, and utterly to you. In 
non-alcoholic marriage sex is a total act of getting. And the body of a wife or husband becomes a chunk of flesh that you please yourself with. Ask any wife married to an alcoholic. If he's still able to perform, she has to go to bed with a drunken pig. But usually he's not able to. And he can't fulfill the very terms of the contract that he made on his wedding day. For many, a wife of an alcoholic, there is no sex. She doesn't have the love, the affection, the giving from another that she has a right to. Now, some women simply turn to others. Some have consciences that won't let them turn to others. And so, in frustration, they pour a smothering kind of love on the children. Case in point, another family that I'm rather close to. Uh, mother and father, one child. At this point in time, the boy, who is now about to be married this summer, was 14 years old. And he and his mother and I were downtown uh, heading for a department store. He was in front, and I was just a step behind him on his left, and she was a step behind him on his right. That kid walked up to the front door of a department store and stopped with his arms at his side. And his mother reached across him for the doorknob, and as she grabbed it, I took her wrist. I said, what are you doing? She said, I was just opening the door. And she stopped. She realized she was opening the door for a 14-year-old who should have been opening the door for her. She was treating him at age 14 as she had treated him when he was age 3. She's completely unaware that she was smothering him with an affection that was unbalanced. How also does alcoholism manifest itself in the physical world? There is that almost prostituted sexual activity, and then there's another one that's worse, incest. Ladies and gentlemen, I was always aware of the fact of incest, but I was absolutely stunned at the prevalence of it. I mentioned last July, before coming to Los Angeles to make the film of this talk, to a young lawyer friend of the family, I said, I'm going to mention incest in this one. He said, Father, within the past month I have been involved in three court cases involving incest. In one case, the male is a psychopath, he's crazy. In the other two cases, alcohol. Ladies and gentlemen, there are 23 counties in the state of Maryland. This was one, this was one month, and this was three cases that came to court. I was in the home of a friend of mine in Montana. He had his staff there one evening. It was kind of just an evening gathering, and the subject came up. He and I are sitting there like teenagers with our mouths open, listening to, the, to his counselors open up all the facts about incest. Do you want to hear a horrifying thing? The alcoholic has said, yes, the whole world knows that. Now listen to the rest of it. A single given incident of incest could happen without anybody knowing about it except the people involved. But this has been researched, and there are no exceptions. The practice of incest cannot continue without the knowledge and therefore the sick, tacit consent of the spouse. Now you answer this one. You answer this one. How well prepared for a normal relationship with another human being of the opposite sex is, let's say, a little 13-year-old girl who for three years has been subjected to sex with a drunken father. You want to hear one of make you stop reading? Today, driving down here from Seattle, a man and his wife drove me down. The wife is a counselor. She said, Father, uh, she had become involved in a group. And somehow or other, there were nine women in the room. Nine. One woman began to cry. Something had happened to her shortly before 
uh, like a week or so before these sessions began. And as she bared what had just happened to her, it came out that seven of the nine women in that room had experienced incest with their fathers. Seven out of nine. But it's a practice, my friends, that is not unusual. And if this is not faced and resolved, it will not be faced and resolved. At a, at a rehab center near me, uh, luckily, thank God this thing came out as it did. A father was involved in an incestuous relationship with his 15-year-old son. And it came to light when the father began making advances to the 11-year-old son and the 15-year-old got jealous. And it all exploded in the family. Thank God they were able to face it and they're resolving it now. Then there's the question of child abuse and wife abuse and husband abuse. Physical beatings. Again, you answer this one. I try to tell young couples, you know, well, our marriage is going to be different. I'm going to have the perfect husband and I'm going to have the perfect wife and this little one, you know. I think it is only sensible and rational to prepare yourself for any contingency that might happen. I remember once I learned to drive at age 35. Some people think I uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember, you know, they say to drive defensively. I had prepared myself for something that actually happened. What would I do if I had a car load full of kids and an animal were to come in front of a car? One time in Michigan, about 18 years ago, I had five kids in the car. Three of them were a niece, uh, a nephew, and two nieces. As we were coming down a country road, I was doing about 50. A mother pheasant and about six little chicks came across the road and I plowed right into them and scattered dead bodies all over. Some of the kids began to cry and I felt like a total heel. But I didn't change that wheel one inch. I knew I was going to hit them and I did. I prepared for that. I would not risk either my life or the life of the kid. Now please, supposing you're going to get married. My husband will never, ever, ever be unfaithful. Suppose he is. Suppose he is. You, this lovely man hit me? Never. Suppose he does. I try to tell people this. If I were alone and I were preparing to get married, I would make up my mind that if ever my husband hit me, it would be once. Just once. Twice I'm gone. I'm gone. Now, I'm going to ask you to answer this. What do you think of the emotional or mental status of a woman who puts up with physical beatings two and three times a week for 13 years? Emotionally, you know the thin line between love and hate. The thin line between love and hate. Two people living together and growing apart. Two people who gave to each other themselves totally and completely now are often bordering on murder. The tugging, the hating, the screaming. You want to know what you're really like? Make a tape of every word you say during any single given day. You will be stunned. Absolutely stunned at what comes out of it. But let me just share this with you. Perhaps in the chalk talk, you remember the phrase I used, in vino veritas. In wine, there is truth. You want to know what someone truly is, get him drinking. In a sense, that is true. Is it true to say that the real you comes out when you're drinking? My answer to that, when I remember this one night about six years ago at a group right near the school where I taught. I went into that question. I said, does the real him come out when he drinks? I said, I do not either or that to death. The answer is not either yes or no. It's a combination of both. 
when it was over, a woman came up to me. I've known this couple for a lot of years. And at this particular point in time, she was an L-9-11, and he was sober in AA-10. She came up sobbing. I said, my God, let's call her Nancy. What in the world's wrong with you? She said, Father, in 11 years that I thought I was living the Al-Anon program, I had never once forgiven him anything. I said, why? She said, I figure that the sober man is the one holding up a front and a facade. The real him is the one that comes out when he's drunk. You know what happens when people drink? Here's a husband and wife living together and their worlds apart. They can't even say good morning without fighting. All right? He has gripes too, you know. He's not a thousand percent wrong, nor is she a thousand percent right. She is not the world's best cook. She's not the world's best housekeeper. She's not the world's best mother. And this is not a negative criticism. It's simply a statement of being human. But he doesn't dare point out her faults when she's screaming at him. She clobbered him with everything he did and said when he was drunk. He doesn't stand a prayer. So he gets drunk. And when he gets drunk, he wants to say, you are a sloppy housekeeper, when she says, you know, he just vomited on the, on the rug. He wants to tell her she's a sloppy housekeeper, but in front of five children, he calls her a goddamn pig. How many years of that do you put up with without feeling like dirt? God help us. Ladies and gentlemen, the emotional damage that we do. I always try to tell recovered and recovering alcoholics, it is nice to meditate on the suffering you went through when you were drinking. Okay, do it and then forget it. Do you want to get value out of suffering? You do a little meditating on the suffering you caused. I could almost die sometimes when I think of that. And here are kids. They love the mother. They love the father. And yet you know the slogan of the comp care people on radio and TV is someone you love, someone you hate. Everybody who's ever lived with an alcoholic experiences that. Ladies and gentlemen, don't put your hands up. But how many of you in this room has ever in his or her life wished someone dead? And then just about died yourself for daring to think that, especially about a parent. Wouldn't it be nice if he just died and left us to become happy? We've all thought those thoughts, haven't we? I have. God, the emotional damage inside the human heart. Listen to the tradition for size. I knew a mother who went up to her 10-year-old daughter and said, Should I leave your daddy? God! It's a wonder that child didn't drop dead. Here's a little baby. Mother and father are her entire universe. And now one of those two adults is putting the burden of decision to shatter that on a ten-year-old child. How many of you in this room, having gotten over your own alcoholism, has ever made a statement like this? Thank God that at least I got sober before my kids were old enough to know anything about my drinking. Don't bet on it. Don't bet on it. How many of you have ever said, thank God my drinking didn't get bad until my kids were grown and married? I know marriages of young couples that have broken up because they were totally preoccupied in arguing about the alcoholism of the parent of one of them. Now try this on for size about the young. There's a good friend of ours back home. In fact, she's a counselor in a rehab center. She and her husband have just gone through a very trying divorce. She's been sober now about four or five years. She left him because he was still drinking and it wound up in divorce. Okay? They have one child, a daughter, age 22, the tragedy is they don't know whether she's living or dead. She left home when she was 14. This lady told us, she said, you know when people say that their kids were too young to have been affected by their, by their drinking? She said, I tell them this. 
In the early days, she said, before my drinking got as bad as it did, she said, I thought it was almost inconsequential. She said, in fact, my husband and I couldn't afford to drink more than twice a week. She said, a couple times a week, we'd have drinks before dinner and after dinner, and that was it. That's all we could afford. The child hadn't even yet started school. When she did, she went into kindergarten. Mother's Day came along. And the teacher said, draw something that will make your mother happy for Mother's Day. So they took out their little pads and their crayons. And a couple of kids, very significantly, drew pictures of their fathers. And this little girl drew a picture of a martini glass. Five years old. She knew what made her mother happy. It didn't affect your kids. Ladies and gentlemen, if there are any alcoholics in this room and you have children, and you are not afraid of what might happen when they meet beverage alcohol, you are still insane. It's dynamite. The only thing I suggest to children of alcoholics is just play it safe. Just play it safe. Don't even go near it. It has nothing to do with morality. It has to do with survival. Spiritually, there's a woman whose conscience won't let her go to another man, so she turns to God and becomes a little fanatic. Ladies and gentlemen, without proper guidance in any phase of life, but especially in the spiritual life, without proper guidance, we usually get el wacko and become fanatical, which is what happens. Or she turns to God and doesn't get the answers that she wants, and she turns away. In either case of which, we learn from others. How do we learn sobriety? Have you ever held uh, meetings whose topic was the power of example? You know how your kids learn to live and cope with life from you. The drug problem in the United States is not heroin or cocaine, it's in your medicine cabinets. And the attitude toward drugs that you allow your kids to have is from letting them watch such crazy things as the Sominex ad. Even in our sleepy little town, some of us, listen to this, it's frightening, some of us can't get to sleep right away, so we take a drug. Right away. We teach the young, very early in life, that pain and unpleasantness are evils. Get rid of them. My painkiller acts 20 minutes faster than yours. Take mine. This is adult strength. Bloppo. <laughs> the rest of the family does not get help. Let's see what happens when a family that gets sick together does not get well together. In many an alcoholic family, the spouse becomes a parent to the spouse. Not a mate, but a father or a mother. Very often the man becomes a father to the woman alcoholic. The woman becomes a mother to the male alcoholic. And they don't realize this, but this is a world that they fall into and become comfortable with. And then when the alcoholic becomes well and rejoins the ranks of adults, they can't cope. Listen to this. It is frightening. I know a man. God, I know this couple very well. She's a brilliant woman. She is his superior intellectually. She was an alcoholic. And he did. He couldn't stand the effects of her drinking, but he wanted her drunk subconsciously. He couldn't stand the fact that he had to pick her body up off the lawn, take her to a hospital, and just about save her life for a period of years. So he prayed and cajoled and screamed and begged, and finally he got people she, to put her into proper treatment. She got well. It took him two years, my friends, but he finally persuaded her to drink again. I know a woman in, in the back east. Eleven years they worked with her husband. He finally got sober, and on his first anniversary, she gave him a bottle of whiskey. A subconscious wish to have him drunk again. I know a man, a very wealthy man indeed. And if you heard the background, you would be stunned. His wife is an alcoholic. And 
She just can't get sober. I don't know what it is. The right button has yet to be pressed. She is a pitiable case. When she gets drunk and deathly sick, he puts her in the finest rehab centers on earth. And when she comes out, he gives her a gift. A trip, a coat, a diamond. He thinks, I think, that he's rewarding her for going into treatment. But it works just the opposite way. When she wants another trip, or another coat, or another diamond, she gets drunk. I believe that he pays her to remain in that god-awful state. And I think he would be stunned to hear anyone say that. Have you ever heard this from the lips of an Al-Anon? Sounds strange from one who prayed for his recovery. God, I wish he were drunk again. She's like, why? She says, you know, my kids never had a father before because he was drunk. They don't have a father now because he's sober. He's out all the time. Ladies and gentlemen, improper recovery balances the name of the game. I know some recovered alcoholics who would go to the gates of hell for a drunken stranger and won't go near a PTA meeting concerning a child. During the drinking days, many kids bury themselves in studies and become A students, and others in total frustration let their studies go and become failures. I heard a young man say to me one time, he said, Father, I truly believe that God Almighty gave me my sobriety to fulfill my responsibilities. He said, I am married, I have a wife. I am a father, I have children. I have a job, therefore there's a boss. He said, I believe God made me well to fulfill my responsibilities to him. Now he said, I must go to AA to gain and maintain my sobriety. But he said, once that is established, and that takes precedence over everything, then I begin first things first to fulfill my responsibilities. He said, if after they're dying, save a drunk, that's great. That's great. I think very often AA is given a bad name by people who abuse it. I know the case of a woman who lived, after many years of sobriety, lived away from home. Conventions, seminars, workshops, and after all, don't we hear the same things over and over and over and over and over and over again, those things? Meetings every night of the week that she wasn't elsewhere. And one night her little ten-year-old boy came, the husband and kids were absolutely disgusted. Long since. And this little kid, he didn't quite know how to tell his mother that the opportunity came. He went to her bedroom one night. She was dressing. He said, going out, Mom? So yeah. He said, no dinner again? TV dinners again tonight? And she used the old cop-out. Would you rather have me the way I was? And that little ten-year-old youngster looked his own mother right in the face and said, tell you the truth, Mom, I'm not too crazy about you either way. And he walked out of the room. <laughs> what happens when a wife gets sober you know the paradox of human nature if your husband or wife or child had multiple sclerosis you would consult a doctor and learn everything you could about it I know some people whose wives have gotten sober and after two months oh, that's her problem anymore. and after three months what the hell are you going to all these meetings for who are these guys showing up at the house to take you out and the foggiest notion of what's involved in the disease or the proper treatment of it. Couldn't care less. He was on his knees screaming three months before when she was still sick. Unbelievable. Is there any answer to this? I believe so. Ladies and gentlemen, the 12 steps of AA 
Avril, in such a knowledge of human nature, is so deep it's almost eerie. It is the only therapy on earth, the only one on earth that dares to put itself in the past tense. It is not a theory. It's been done. It works. It works. And so we use those 12 steps in, a, in an organization called AA, in which alcoholics help alcoholics. In Al-Anon, where non-alcoholics help non-alcoholics. In Al-Ateen, where the children of alcoholics help the children of alcoholics. Why can't we have something like our family, which entire families share with each other, in a dimension that is not addressed in any of these other churches? I believe in the simple, solid goodness and solidity of normal, ordinary people. And I believe that people have the answers to their own problems. I am a strong man. I am also weak. You are strong, and you are weak. And thank God that that's the way he built us. You see, because one day my strength will supply for your weakness, and one day your strength will supply for my weakness, and thank God that's the way it is. No man is judging his own case. Because if I could handle me, then I wouldn't need you. And I think families need families. I am not poo-pooing professionalism. Ladies and gentlemen, I have been so bloody misquoted. I have been used to cream professionals. And I resent that. In my own recovery, I had the help of a clinical psychologist for seven months, and I don't believe I could have made it without him. My point is, there is a proper hierarchy of priorities. Sobriety first. And I believe that most human problems have been experienced by others before us, and those who have resolved those problems can help us to handle them. If it is something really sticky, then we seek out a professional who is specifically trained to do that. I am not anti-intellectual. I taught school for 21 years. I have three degrees of my own. They're not important, but at least they're there. But I reached a stage in my life where I have come to realize that thermometers have degrees too. <laughs> and I think you're well aware of where they put some thermometers. <laughs> there was a beautiful psychologist on the David Hartman show not more than a couple of months ago, and he was, a man, he was beautiful. He had it all together. He wasn't threatened by anybody. And so he didn't hide behind all of that goofy vocabulary. Have you ever noticed that every profession has its own vocabulary? Now, I'm not knocking this. I know it sounds exaggerated, and I enjoy it, so indulge me for a while. <laughs> every profession has its own cute little set of vocabulary with, behind which it hides and tries to dazzle the rest of the world with its intellectual footwork. That includes us clergy. Now, I do realize you have to have words that mean specific things, or you can never communicate. All right, I acknowledge that. But this man himself was making the point that here in the world of psychology, they have brought us to this point in our development that we are able now to bring out our emotions and to face them and try to resolve them and so on. And yet the very language of the psychologist is almost completely impersonal. We don't say we're going to talk to a kid's mother and dad. We consult the significant others in his... <laughs> Who's interested in the insignificant others? Well, we must have a meaningful relationship. What other kind of... <laughs> I didn't read a good book last night. I had a marvelous learning experience. <laughs> that one is puke-inducing. <laughs> why, why, why can't we just use ordinary human terms? I truly believe that the great truths that God Almighty gave us to live by are capable of being grasped by illiterates as well as by PhDs. Why do we drum up the works with goofy words? You know the greatest compliment you can pay a psychiatrist is to have to be told he is one when he leaves the room. I'm dead serious about that. 
By the way, this state can be truly proud of one of its sons. Did you see the movie One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest? As you know, it was filmed down at Salem at the state hospital. You know who played the psychiatrist in the movie? Dr. Dean Brooks, the head psychiatrist down there. He's a beautiful man. He should be a psychiatrist. He's gorgeous. He really is. What happens when an... Hey, by the way, lest I forget. I have a good memory, but it's short. Whether the alcoholic gets treatment or not, the non-alcoholic members of the family should get help for their problems. Whether he ever gets sober, they still need to learn how to cope with life, especially if they have chosen to live with it. What happens when people get well? The desire to drink is lifted from the alcoholic. He's now free to learn to love again. And if a non-alcoholic spouse gets treatment, she learns how to love again. And then the learning process sets in, and then it is passed on to the kids. I'd like to pass this on to you as just a hint about teaching love. Now, obviously, I'm not married. I have no children of my own. But ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to lay an egg to tell a good omelet. (laughs) I know that this will sound utterly simplistic for any of you here with a scientific background. But please listen to it. I think there's an ounce of validity. All mama bears raise all baby bears in exactly the same way. And they all crank out mature bears. Why we don't learn from them, I don't know. (laughs) Go into any bear cave. You will not find a copy of Dr. Spock or the latest issue of Psychology Today. And I'm not knocking either one of them. But I think a lot of people get so screwed up in their thinking with a whole lot of technical stuff, they miss the obvious. The mama bear, hey, by the way, education has little, if anything, to do with the schools you send your kids to. Education means that you prepare your kids for adulthood. That's what education means, and you're going to teach that. You have to teach your kids that life is composed of two parts, pleasant things and unpleasant things, and you have to teach them how to cope with both without chemicals and without goofy emotions. What does the mama bear have to teach her young in order to prepare them for adulthood? She has to teach them two things, how to avoid danger in order to preserve their life, and how to hunt for food in order to sustain it. How does the mama bear teach? You know what astounds me with the human animal? Our children will be different. And they usually are. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever see a 25-year-old mother in a supermarket? She's got a Ph.D., and she's explaining to a two-and-a-half-year-old why he shouldn't pull the bottom roll of toilet paper out of the display. Now, honey, that man over there has spent long weeks putting those things together, and you know you would shatter his composure if it, and all of a sudden, <laughs> what you do is you say, leave that alone. <laughs> you know how mama bears teach verbally? They give certain signals with their voices. And then they use the most significant of all of the five senses, the sense of touch. They teach two kinds of love with touch. Soft, warm, moist, tender love. And also disciplined, painful, tough love. Alright. The mama bear tries to teach them as young little cubs that are so vulnerable that they have to flee danger. So she has to prepare them for it. So she gets them together one day after they're so old in the beginning... She cuts the umbilical cord and licks them clean and licks them, brings them to her side to feed them. And they're so secure with the warmth of her touch that they fall asleep at her side. Now, please, she's going to teach them very early that life is tough. So she says, now, my two little dears, 
even though they're bears. <laughs> I, I really didn't mean that. I, I was kind of shaving out there. <laughs> says, when I give this signal, and she makes a noise, you climb up that tree. Why, Mom? Climb up that tree. So she gives a signal. It, all right, no, she lets them go out and play and so on. And she gives a signal. And they're a little reluctant. So I said, up the tree and up the tree now. And they're smoke, what got into her? And they're up there for a while. And she lets them get antsy fancy. And they begin to come down. She swats them when I tell you to. Please notice, when a mama bear swats a baby bear, she never breaks its skin or never breaks its bones. Only humans do that. And then this training goes on and on. And they're getting a little bright that you know. They're out in the field playing. Oh, there's that dumb signal again. Blah, 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 the trees. But they dare not quite because she'll swat them. See? So there's one day they're way far away and she trumpets the message, get up the tree. Good heavens, we're having this lovely game. Look at his split there. Boy, he ain't wasting a step. They're getting it done. And But they're muttering under their... You have to go up that dumb tree again. That stupid signal. And they get up the tree and there they are griping to each other quietly. One of saying, you know, what, what's this goofiness all about. She gives a dumb signal and we're so far away we have to come up this tree. I've got every branch from Holy smoke! Look at that mountain lion! He sees the mountain lion. And then he comes to a realization that many young come to sometime in life. Maybe mommies do know a few things that we don't. As time goes by, she also teaches them to remain stock still when they're hunting the fish, the salmon, and the stream. And she teaches them all the patience of stalking and so on and so on and so forth. And the, the end comes. They are now prepared, and as a good mother, she's willing to turn loose adults, just as she is. So she sends them up a tree for the last time, and without ever looking back, she walks away to begin the process again to mate and bring two more cubs into the world. And they're up there until hunger brings them down. And as soon as they set foot on that ground, they know there's no mummy anymore. They're on their own. And years later, when they pass her in the forest, I'm sure they nod their reverence, their respect, and their gratitude. Ladies and gentlemen, if you deny your children the discipline that you are bound to give them, they will live to curse you for it. What happens in many modern homes... Well, in most homes, I think, most parents love their children enough to put everything that is good in themselves into their children. And I've told this to, I don't know how many parents that I have known and loved, for God's sake, they may be going through their shaky years, but I believe with a passion that when those years are over, they will be the product that you have produced. Look at a 35-year-old farmer. He's raising his kid. He was once a kid. He once rebelled. But he has a love of the soil that he gained from his own dad. And yet I think there's a grave danger in teaching our kids that anything unpleasant is evil. We don't send our kids to the store. We drive them. My children will not have to work as hard as I did. Why? What's evil about sweating? We do not give a lot of our children a sense of family and we are shattered when they reach age 18 and want to go out on their own to an apartment of their own. How in the name of God can a kid have a sense of family when he demands and gets paid for mowing his own lawn? Unbelievable. So I would just ask you to remember the mama bear. Please remember she loves her kids as much as she loves yours. 
and they crank out mature bears without failure. Ladies and gentlemen, a lot of people, as the years have gone by, have complimented me, and it's very flattering indeed. But they like some of the talks I give because of the humor. Did you notice there wasn't any tonight? I just couldn't think of anything funny. But I'd like you to leave you with this. It's worth a smile anyway. There's another song from South Pacific. I'm just a cockeyed optimist. And I am too. I do believe in the goodness and the solidity of people. I really do. I do a lot of work with the military and I tell them they impress me. They're good people. Men and women who could be earning five and six times more than what they're getting. But they have a virtue that is called patriotism. They are not afraid to wear a uniform that others would spit at. They are not afraid to love their country and their flag. These things impress me. People like you impress me. And I am an optimist. They tell a marvelous story of a psychologist who was teaching the difference between pessimism and optimism. And when the class was over, he said, now I'd like to illustrate it. And he took a depressed, pessimistic kid into a room that had uh, an ice cream parlor, a pastry shop and a candy shop, and a gymnasium full of toys. He said, son, it's yours. And he locked him in the room. One hour later, he came back, kid sitting in the middle of the room on a hardback chair staring at the floor. He said, don't you like all those goodies? Kid says, I love them. He said, didn't you eat any? No. Why? Well, I'd probably eat too much and get sick and throw up. How about those toys? Well, I, I like the play, but I'd probably take one and break it and then find out it belonged to somebody else and be the most expensive toy in the room. But he couldn't look on the bright side of anything. And then there was another lovely little kid, 12 years old, happy-go-lucky. He used to deliver papers in snow, sunshine, whatever, at 5.30 in the morning. And everybody knew where he was because he whistled all the time. Just a happy kid. So the psychologist took him to a room full of horse manure and locked him in there for an hour. And he came back and he unlocked the door. Here's a little kid in there with a shovel. And he's humming and whistling and shoving and humming and whistling and shoveling and humming and shoveling. He says, why are you so happy? And the kid looked at him stunned. He said, why so happy? Oh, there's horse manure in here. He says, there's got to be a pony somewhere. Hey, look at her. And that's what life is all about. To live as they're hurt. Life has thorns in it. Push them aside. There's a rose in there. And I hope to God that up until the day I die, just like that little kid, I'll be humming and shuffling looking for the pony. Because I believe he's there. And I hope to heavens that you keep humming and shuffling and find the pony you're looking for. Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for listening.